Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. I don't know if you've ever considered this question, but before we move to the message today, I'd like for you to ponder with me the question, why did God use prophecies? Why is it we find throughout Scripture records of what God said would happen? Well, there's a place in Scripture where God answers that question. I think it will put what we're going to talk about into context today. So I want us to to look at this passage on the screen together. It comes from Isaiah, and it tells us exactly why God used prophecies. Prophecies. The next. Isaiah forty eight. There you go. Says this I announced events beforehand, I issued the decrees and made the predictions. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. I did this because I know how stubborn you are. Your neck muscles are like iron and your forehead like bronze. I announced them to you beforehand. Before they happened, I predicted them for you so that you could never say, my image did these things, my idol, my cast image decreed them. And so that's the whole reason. Uh, We would have to give God the credit and the glory for what he prophesied. Some of these prophecies were short-term. Some of them were over centuries. But God, in his omniscience, knew and understood how time would play out, what he had planned and purposed. And those prophecies stand as an exclamation point of God's all-knowing character. And so as we consider prophetic footprints and foreshadows in the genealogy of Jesus. And today as we contemplate Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Kings, let's keep that in mind. These prophecies are to prove that there is no God other than the God of Scripture and that He alone is the one who can see into a future yet to be experienced by us and clearly predict and promise what will occur. They are given to magnify his omniscience. Before we read our text, let's read the sermon in a sentence that we've been working through the past few weeks. Let's read that together. God loves people and works through them with prophetical precision, providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in their past by pouring out his mercy and grace to exalt his son, Jesus Christ, and to fulfill his eternal plan of redeeming all who believe in him. What a great reality that is in scripture. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to focus today on verses 6 through 11 as we once again consider some of those prophetic foreshadows and footprints here 
in Matthew that pulls together some of those things prophesied in the Old Testament. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the precision with which you brought your son to this earth to be the sacrifice, that sinless sacrifice for our sin. We thank you for the the searchlights of the Old Testament that point toward him and for the brightness with which he is magnified in the New Testament. Father, today we, we come here with a desperate need for him. And so, Father, I recognize that you have not called me to make him great. He is great. But may my words through your word magnify his greatness. So Father, please speak through me. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been emphasizing the fact that when we read these names, perhaps uh, they're unusual and we, we don't have much context of what each person's life was like. But, but as Matthew is building a bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament and he's building that bridge from a Jewish perspective, people reading this list of names would, would have a context for those names. Uh, they would know what type of leader these men were, where they failed and where they did well. And these pictures would come into their minds, perhaps, that were prophesied regarding the Messiah who would come through the lineage of David and his uh, heritage and his lineage there would be from the king of David and his throne would continue forever. But in the midst of these names, today I, I want to point out three prophecies from the Old Testament that are connected to some of these kings. There are three occasions 
where you find a prophecy concerning three kings in this list that were not prophecies of blessing, but prophecies of struggle and failure and how God would address that even in the midst of this lineage of Christ. Each of these prophecies had a specific consequence connected to them, a consequence that was connected to one of these kings. And so as we walk through that, I'll highlight where those three are. But when we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says there that David begot or was the father of Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You'll recall that Solomon is very prominently known as the one who built the magnificent temple where God was to be worshipped. It was a, a dream and a desire of his father David to build that temple, a permanent structure where the people of God could gather to a central location there in Jerusalem and there in obedience to God they could worship through the variety of ways that God had given them to do so. But David, because he was a man of war, was unable to do that and God allowed him to be a part of the planning but it was Solomon that was blessed with great insight and great wisdom to bring about the building of the temple. And you'll recall that God came to Solomon and asked him what he would desire. And he asked God to give him wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. And he was known for that wisdom, but he was not always wise. And so I want us to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. One thing we're going to see in the mentioning of Solomon here is that this genealogy is a picture of divine faithfulness in spite of human failure. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have a promise concerning Solomon. It's a promise made through Nathan the prophet to King David. The word of the Lord came through Nathan. And in verse 12, he says this to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, a picture of death, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him or discipline him with the rod of men, and with the blows or strokes of the Son of Man. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, immediately you can see that that prophecy, first of all, speaks of Solomon, the one who would follow his father by becoming the king of the people of God. And under the rule of God, he was to follow the teachings and the commands of Scripture and guide the people in faithful obedience to God. Then if you turn to 1 Kings, take a right there at uh, the books of Samuel, 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 9. Find another passage. where Solomon has dedicated the temple. What a momentous occasion that must have been. It was a wonder and a beauty. It was something that people marveled at, that Solomon could be the one who could do something that fantastic. And so Solomon prays and he dedicates the temple. He cries out to God and he calls on him in a variety of examples of situations to be faithful to his people and respond to the prayers that would be prayed from that place. And God comes to him. And he says to him, beginning in verse 4, Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will be exalted, yet everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Now, we know that God is faithful beyond our failure. But Solomon is a prime example of a failure that comes to one who was greatly blessed. He was the king. Not only that, he was the son of the one that would be referred to as the greatest king ever to reign, 
in Israel. It is a tragic picture of what can happen when our eyes turn away from an obedient heart toward the Lord. And so he's reminding Solomon, I know you're the son of David, but that's not going to carry you very far. You have to seek my heart. You have to know my mind to be faithful to this. And so here's the promise. If you don't, great calamity will come upon you and through you and the people of the kingdom will struggle. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you have a picture there before they ever even were considering a king over the people of God. He's giving commands and he's saying that when the king comes into power and God has placed him there, one of the things he is to do is to write a copy of the law, the first five books of the Bible as we know them, and learn that and live by it and read it and meditate it on it every day of his life. That would be his spiritual lifeline. And so he would have to write out a copy of that, read it, meditate upon it, remember it in every decision and every contemplation that he had. And he is warned there in Deuteronomy 17 of three things that could bring about the downfall of a king. Number one, the accumulation of excessive wealth. That was the warning before they had ever contemplated a king. Now we can make the assumption that Solomon was aware of these commands. Solomon knew the accountability he had before God, but it's as if in order he breaks each of these commands. In 1 Kings 10, it tells us in verse 14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now my Bible, the notes part of it, is copywritten 1990. So uh, just imagine that's 30 years ago. 666 talents of gold that came to him yearly was the equivalent of just under $4 billion in, that, in our currency. You add the inflation from 1990 to now, I, I'm pretty sure we're not paying the same we did for gas and for other things that we were in 1990. Just imagine how that number would inflate into our economy. He would be a, a billionaire multiplied, and that came to him yearly. And he began to put his confidence in his riches. And he had been warned not to do that. Then he had been warned not to put his confidence in the multiplication of horses. Horses were a symbol of his military power that he had at his disposal. But yet in 1 Kings chapter 10, we find him doing just that. 
It says in verse 26, And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva, and the king's merchants brought them in at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150, and thus all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria exported them to him. You see how the tragedy begins to grow? His reliance and dependence that begins to spread onto other things. He's accumulating wealth and he's uh, known for that, how wealthy he is. He has all of these horses and chariots at his disposal and that's growing. And one of the key problems there is some of those are coming from Egypt uh, being an ungodly alliance there. So strike two, strike one, accumulation of excessive wealth. Number two, the multiplication of horses or military prowess. And number three, the intermarriage with foreign wives. If you look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. And one thing that was common was for a king to marry a daughter of another king, hence building a strong alliance there to where if there was military unrest, that powerful king would have second thoughts about, about attacking the king married to his daughter. There was a warning about that. And it says in verse 2, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon clung to these and love. And he had 700 wives, princes, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord or at peace with the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place. And it says in verse 8, and he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now it would be easy for us to point the finger at 
Solomon and say how, how terrible that is. I mean, aren't we prone to materialism? Aren't we prone to becoming self-sufficient and protecting ourselves? Aren't we prone to loving that which God has warned us not to? And have you not found in all of that there is a turning of the heart if you're not careful? You begin to let down your guard. You begin to think you're an exception to the rule. We don't know. Solomon might have thought, well, I'm the son of King David. I come from a rich background and surely God would make an exception for me. But the reality is he doesn't. And so Solomon's heart turned from God because he loved people more than he loved God. Now think about that prophecy. If you walk in my ways, I will bless you. You will never lack a a descendant to reign on the throne, but if you don't, I will bring calamity upon this place. And not only would Solomon suffer, but generation after generation after generation, people would suffer because of his downfall and the turning of his heart away from God and those who followed suit with Solomon. Here's something I find beautiful. The king of kings, Jesus himself. You recall it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 where he's He's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And Satan is calling into question the word of God. He's trying to get Jesus to do things that he knows would sacrifice his sinlessness and his ability to be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Satan is tempting him. And Jesus takes words from Deuteronomy, the very book that brought about disobedience in Solomon's life, now it brings about obedience in the king of kings' life in three ways. Isn't that an amazing contrast? When you stand upon the word of God and you use the word of God as the sword of the spirit, you can fight those battles. You do not have to fall prey. God can deliver you through his word. King after king would fail, but God would remain faithful. So just just picture this lineage as it moves forward. It's full of human failure after human failure after human failure, but it's lined with the faithfulness of God in spite of that. Then we come to the second thing. Divine jealousy in response to human idolatry is expressed in this genealogy. When you move there to verse 7 and you begin to read the next king, his name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam, following his father to reign among the people of God, makes some foolish choices and it results in a divided kingdom. It divided to the extent that Rehoboam only ruled over Judah, the southern part. The northern part of Israel came under the reign of a man named Jeroboam. 
We'll come back to Jeroboam later. But what we're going to see is one of the prophecies that speaks forward talks about how God responds to idolatry with jealousy. So here's what I want us to do. If you'll just stay there in Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read God's assessment of each of these kings. Now just imagine if it was this way when you ended your life on this earth that on your tombstone it either said this person did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or it said this person did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not in the sight of people, in the sight of the Lord. Because remember, he looks on the heart. He's the one we are accountable to. Can you imagine? You see, you only have those only choices. You're either doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord or from God's perspective, you're doing evil in the sight of the Lord when you live in disobedience. So let's just walk through these names and let me read the divine assessment of each one. It'll it'll take a little while, but I think it's helpful. Rehoboam. The scripture says this about King Rehoboam. After Rehoboam's rule was established and solidified, he and all Israel rejected the law of the Lord. And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. The next king, Abijah. He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. King Asa. He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, but the high places, those places of idolatry, were not removed from Israel Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. Jehoshaphat, the king. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he was told, because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, The Lord has destroyed your works. Go to the next name in the list, Joram. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Then you go to the next name, King Uzziah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father had done, he sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding and the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So his fame spread far and wide for he was marvelously helped Till he became strong. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God. 
Then there's Jotham, the king. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still the people acted very corruptly. Ahaz. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the false god Baal. Then there's King Hezekiah in the list. In those days, Hezekiah was stricken with a terminal illness. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a sign confirming that he would be healed. But Hezekiah was ungrateful. He had a proud attitude provoking God to be angry at him as well as Judah and Jerusalem. Then there's King Manasseh. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Amon. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done for Amon sacrificed all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and he served them. Not a real illustrious bunch of guys, is it? It's not like the who's who of obedience in the Old Testament. It, here's tragic stories of one after the other, even on a good focus in their life, coming to a point of failure. But aren't you glad that our life and our eternity is not determined by our failure, but by God's faithfulness? And that's the picture it's pointing to. In Jesus, we have the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness. And this list, although it's depressing to do what we just did, it should also be refreshing to know that there is no one perfect and pure and holy but Jesus. And we desperately need what he did for us on the cross. Well, that brings us to another king in verse 10, Josiah. King Josiah. There's a prophecy about him earlier in the Old Testament. It happens around the time of the beginning of that list with Rehoboam, where Rehoboam and Jeroboam are, are reigning over the divided kingdom. It doesn't have to do with Jeroboam. It has to do with, I mean, with Rehoboam, it has to do with Jeroboam. Not Rehoboam, the son of Solomon but it points to one who will do something to bring the people back on track. In 1 Kings 13, you find this prophecy given to Jeroboam. First Kings Let's back up to chapter 12. Verse 31, he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi's. You see, see what he's doing? He's, he's making people priests who shouldn't have been priests. He's allowing people to worship where they shouldn't worship. 
And he's setting up worship at the high place of the places of the pagan gods. That was his sin. He ordained a feast, it says in verse 32. He offered sacrifices. And again, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings, it says in verse 33, on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. You see what he's doing? He appointed people that shouldn't have been appointed to worship at places it was intended for them to worship. At times it was never designed by God for that worship to occur. God does not take that lightly. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 13, And behold... A man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar, the man of God, by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Now look at that list in Matthew chapter 1. Look at all the kings that would come and go between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, his contemporary, that passage was about, Look at all of the ways they reigned. We didn't read how many years each one of them reigned. A lot of time elapses here. I didn't do the math, but a lot of time elapses. Then you find the picture of the fulfillment of that prophecy in 2 Kings chapter 12. I mean, 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. This is what it says. Verses 8 through 9. It says in verse 8, And he, meaning Josiah, brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also he broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. Then notice what it says. In verse 13. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones 
of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had made Israel sin, had made both the altar and the high places, he broke down and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. So the very prophecy happens there. God brings a young man named Josiah. You know how old Josiah was when he was king? He was eight. But as a teenager, he made a commitment to turn his heart to the Lord. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of a a great tragedy, isn't it? In all these kings' lives. But it's a picture that, that God does not let his people worship lesser gods without consequences. Now, when you and I think about jealousy from a human perspective, we think about someone who's raging mad, out of control, uh, very selfish and very upset and hurt and, and very emotional. But God's jealousy is different than that. God is not raging out of control. God is pursuing his people at any cost to bring them back to his love and his grace and his mercy for which we are desperate. He does not tolerate us worshiping false gods. Our love and loyalty may be fickle, but God's love and loyalty never fails. That's a picture we find in Matthew chapter 1. We find a picture of divine jealousy in response to human idolatry. And then finally, divine blessing beyond human barrenness. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, it says this, Josiah begot Jeconiah, also known as Coniah or Jehoiakim, and his brothers about the time They were carried away to Babylon. The Babylonian captivity happened because of disobedience. Now, we didn't think much when we read that word, probably Jeconiah, or the name Jehoiakim, but there's a prophecy about him and the consequences in his life. You see, he was next to the last of the kings to rule before they went into exile. He ruled in an ungodly way. He promoted sinfulness and wickedness all around him. And you find a picture of it in 2 Kings chapter 24. And you find what? What happened? 2 Kings 24, 8 through 9. It's a tragic story. Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Then notice what it says in verse 13. He carried out from there 
all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said for him to place there. Not just a neglect, but a ravaging of the temple. And so there's a prophecy about him in Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. Find a prophecy about Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. In verses 24 to 30. As we read this, you'll, you'll see why it's strange that his name is mentioned in that genealogy. Beginning in verse 24 of Jeremiah 22. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hands of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. And then look down at verses 29 and 30. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man... Jeconiah down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Pretty harsh word. None of his descendants will rule over Judah ever again. Well, you look at that and you think, well, immediately it didn't happen because instead of one of his offspring, his uncle Zedekiah reigned. But yet, why is his name in the genealogy of Jesus? None of his descendants are to reign over the throne of Judah. It looks like all of God's covenant is gone. Notice something important here. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. You know what the reminder is here? Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. He was his earthly guardian as what we would call a stepfather because Jesus was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit came upon her and she gave birth to the Son of God. And although this genealogy travels all the way through all of these kings and all of their failures and all of the idolatry and it comes through Jeconiah, Coniah, Jehoiakim, all of those names, it gets to Joseph, but, but that's not where Jesus came from. You see what was happening? That prophecy we just read is a prophetic 
exclamation point on the virgin birth of Jesus. Even as things played out and even as people failed and even as this barrenness was pronounced on his life, even beyond that, there was blessing beyond his barrenness because Jesus would come. So it looks like Jeconiah is the ultimate failure. He will have no heritage in the kingdom and that is so true because Jesus did not come from him. Jesus was virgin born and King Jesus alone is worthy of the throne of your heart. He alone, every prophecy, every word that points through these men and to him, even those that are negative that have consequences, blend together to bring about the magnification of Jesus Christ himself. So who are you trusting in today? To whom are you giving your allegiance? What are you allowing to have the throne of your heart? Only Jesus belongs there. Only Jesus is worthy. And so as we walk through all of these kings that we may not remember all of their names or any of that, it doesn't matter. Just remember the name of King Jesus because it's in his name, not just a kingdom will bow, but every single one in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, they will bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I'm asking you today, have you bowed your knee to Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? Are you serving someone who is lesser, who will always fail you, but Jesus never will? We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.